welcome to the 2021 Gail Kopman History Lecture. Thanks for being with us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'd like to thank our venue host, the uh, Crescent Hotel. So it's always a pleasure being here. Thanks so much. Thanks so much to the team over there. I'd also like to take a moment to recognize and thank Ed and Catherine Kopman. Thank you so much. <clears throat> they have supported us for this Gail Kopman Lecture Endowment Series. Gail Kopman was a pillar of the community, and we're so pleased to honor her commitment to history and civics education each year at this lecture. So thank you. So great to see you. Uh, as we continue to safely operate in person, we'll be taking every step within our capacity to uh, protect our community, all of you. So for the most up-to-date information on our safety and health practices and also to see, to see our event lineup, head to our website, dfwworld.org. And our next program will take place in person. You might be happy to hear this next Monday, October 18th, here at the Crescent, as we welcome writer, producer, and former CIA officer, Joe Weisberg, and perhaps you will know him as the creator of the FX series, The Americans. I don't know if any of you watched it, but it's fabulous. I thoroughly enjoyed it. <coughs> and he will be joined by another former CIA officer and ex-FBI agent Tracy Walder to discuss his book, Russia Upside Down, an exit strategy for the second Cold War. Hope to see you there. So before we get started, a quick reminder just to turn off your phones, make sure they're silent, do not disturb, whatever. Our guest tonight is a man widely regarded as one of the most important people in Washington, D.C. David Rubenstein is co-founder and co-chair of one of the world's largest and most successful private investment firms, the Carlyle Group. He currently chairs the boards of the Council on Foreign Relations, the Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts, and the Economic Club of Washington and serves as a member or trustee of several other institutions, including the Harvard Corporation, the National Gallery of Art, the Brookings Institution, and the World Economic Forum, to name just a few. A philanthropic leader, he is an original signer of the Giving Pledge, and that's a commitment of the world's wealthiest individuals to dedicate the majority of their wealth by giving back to our country, he is a proud graduate of Duke University, which I understand you are headed to tomorrow, or no, tonight. You're headed there tonight. And was the editor of the Law Review at the University of Chicago Law School. I was able to work with David last year for our program with the World Affairs Councils of America when I was in D.C., and he was fabulous as always. So thank you, David, for joining us, truly. And moderating today's conversation is my friend and council president emeritus, Jim Falk. Jim served as council president for 20 years until his retirement earlier this year and is now co-host of the McQuiston program on KERA. I know we are in for a fascinating discussion, so please join me in welcoming these two to their conversation. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much, Liz. <clears throat> 
and I'm just going to ask you to hold off for one second because one of the things that I get to do uh, at the Gail Cotman lecture, and it means so much, it's the third time that I've talked about Gail, and I thought, you know, what can I say fresh? And then I just thought, you know, that vision of her running out of her house in Highland Park with the goofiest smile and such joy. But she was so much more than that. Um, truly among my best memories here at the World Affairs Council is the opportunity, and Liz, you'll see what this is like, to work with the board and generous donors to create something that will really last and, and make a difference. And those of you who know me, and God, David, I hate to bring this up, but I have to. I'm a graduate of that school a little bit farther north. And we have, that's right, wahoo wah. So I can I always have to talk about Thomas Jefferson. And we all know that Thomas Jefferson was a man of many accomplishments. And on his headstone, he only mentioned three things. That he was author of the Declaration of Independence and the Statue of uh, Virginia for Religious Freedom, and of course, the father of the University of Virginia. So if I were asked to write the tombstone, the headstone for Gail Cotman, what would I say? I would say first that she was a dedicated and loved, cherished teacher, history teacher for seventh and eighth graders. She was a devoted mother and a loving wife. Her connection with the World Affairs Council, many of you will remember this uh, when we <laughs> had lunch programs on a regular basis. She would bring students at a table. They would be sitting up so straight. They were so well prepared. They all had questions, David. They were really ready to be there. And they usually asked the best questions. Now, these were sixth and seventh graders. And they were sitting in rooms with high school students and college students. Her students really understood the joy of reading, language. And I ran across this quote from Desmond Tutu. If history were taught in the form of stories, it would never be forgotten. And that's what you do so well, too. Well, uh, thank you. And thank you for inviting me uh, here. And thank you. I would say that I would think her tombstone should say, longest living woman in Texas history. Wouldn't that be better? That wouldn't be bad. <laughs> um, she, and, but but, uh, but I, on your introduction, I have to correct one thing. I am not one of the most influential people in Washington because I don't want to be <laughs> implied that I have anything to do with what's going on in Washington. I want to be the least influential person in Washington because I don't want anybody to be blaming me for what's going on in Washington. And there's a lot to blame people for. Right. But one thing I do want to mention is that, and Liz, you touched on this, this endowment means so much to the World Affairs Council. Uh, Doug Brinkley was the first speaker. Uh, Peter Baker, Baker and uh, Susan Glasner were last year. And it wouldn't be possible without the generous donation of Ed and, and Catherine. So applause. So since we're talking about history teachers, who was your favorite teacher? And how did you get really this deep abiding interest in American history? Well, if I was a great physics student or a great chemistry student, I probably would, you know, remember those teachers more, but I wasn't that great in the sciences, and I got my best grades in history, so that tended to gravitate me towards there. But in my high school, I went to a large public high school, and there was a, a famous history teacher there who just really made it so interesting and made American history seem more interesting than any other subject, and since he gave me good grades, I thought he was a really good teacher. Um, <laughs> And so I remember his name is Benjamin Emenheiser, a terrific uh, person who taught at this high school for some 40 years. And, um, you know, but what really got me interested in history was probably not so much that, but 
I, when I worked at the White House as a young man, you obviously have a sense of history, and I've lived in Washington now for more or less 40 years, so you see a lot of monuments, memorials, and, and you tend to uh, appreciate American history a little bit more when you're living there probably, so maybe that's part of it. And when you drove through Charlottesville to go to Durham, God, um, what did you major in? Well, I thought I would, my interest in life was not making money. I had no interest in money. My family never had any money. So it, you failed at that then. <laughs> well, it was, you know, it, it, you, I was, my parents were not high school or college graduates, and they just had a blue-collar existence, and they didn't talk about money. In those days, this was the 1950s and 60s, people didn't aspire to go be a private equity person. There was no private equity. And people didn't say, I'm going to do a, a startup, and they didn't have that. So basically, if you wanted to go into business, you went into your father's business, if your father had one, or you might go into a large corporation or something like that. But really, it wasn't on the mind of people. I was interested in politics and government, and that's what I thought was the most important thing to me then. So I, I majored in uh, political science, which, of course, we know is not a science, but I majored in political science and took a lot of courses in history, and I took as few courses in, in science as I could because I wanted to make sure my grades were good, so I didn't think I would do very well in science courses. But, and it, it worked out. But, you know, at Duke, um, I, you know, I... Last year at Duke, there were 47,000 people got in. I mean, 47,000 people applied at Duke University. Any, anybody have any children ever going to Duke here? No? Everybody goes to UVA? So 47,000 <laughs> 47, applied. And, uh, and they accepted like 4 or 5%. So it's incredible how, how hard it is to get into that and other selective schools. Yeah. Um, I went to see the admissions director when I became the chairman of the board, and I said, you know, just tell me, yeah, how did I get in? And uh, was it hard for me to get in? And, you know, what was the chance? He said... David, we only had 5,000 applications that year, and we accepted 60% of them, so it wasn't that hard to get in. So and the truth is, I told the Board of Trustees, not one person could probably get in who's now on the Board of Trustees. Uh, but I, I would have gone to UVA, but I wasn't a, a, um, a native of Virginia. If you lived in Virginia, you get a... That's how I got in. Right. It was, All right. It was a lower <laughs> tuition, and so that, that didn't really happen. But uh, UVA is, uh, you know, is, a, is a very good school, and I spent a lot of time there. And uh, because of uh, th their interest in, in Jefferson, and, and I've done a lot of things in Monticello, Montpelier, and so forth. So I think UVA is a great school. In fact, uh, you know, I, I, I'm involved with a number of things there in relating to history. Did you go to law school right out of Duke? I did. Um, I, in those days, if you came from a not wealthy family, you didn't say, you know, I'll take a gap year or two and just kind of run around Europe. And maybe I'll get a Ph.D. in history, and then I'll buckle down and get a law degree. No, I, I had a hard time convincing my parents, you know, look, I'm going to do college four years and then three years of law school. And they kind of got it was three years. But if I had said to my parents, you know, I'm going to maybe take two years off and kind of find out what I really want to do with my life, they they what? So uh, I went right to law school and, um, and then went right to uh, work on in a large uh, firm in New York. And in those days, the starting salary was seen as outrageous. It was $16,000. And my parents couldn't believe anybody was going to make $16,000 a year, but uh, that's what I was paid, and I, I thought it was pretty good. I'm looking at the managing, former managing partner of Haynes & Boone. I don't think he was paying 16000 to his young associates. Uh, not in 1973? I don't know. But uh, now, this, now the starting salary is so, well, in some large firms in New York or in Washington, I think the starting salary may be around uh, close to 200000 for some of these firms. But if you're a Supreme Court clerk, you get a, in some cases, a three or four hundred thousand dollar bonus. So the chief justice, I have been involved with him through the Smithsonian. He said, you, you know, he's getting paid. I think it's like one hundred ninety-five thousand dollars or something like that, two hundred thousand dollars a year. His clerks 
As soon as they leave, they're getting $500,000 compensation and a bonus. And it does seem a little strange that, that young men and women are getting that and the Chief Justice is getting yep. hardly anything. Did you, did you work on the, uh, I know you worked in the Carter White House. Did you work in his campaign or how, what? Well, what happened uh, was I uh, wanted to work in politics, and so I worked in the large law firm in New York, and I was inspired to go there because the man who had written the greatest inaugural address that I had ever read, uh, John Kenney's inaugural address, um, it was Ted Sorensen. He wrote that speech, and he was then at a firm called Paul Weiss. And I went there, and they had a lot of other political people who had been there. Arthur Goldberg had been there, and... and uh, uh, a number of other people uh, who were prominent in the politics as well as business. So I went there and tried to kind of be an understudy to him. And I think he quickly realized I wasn't that good a lawyer. And so he didn't want me to be seen as his mentee because he realized I wasn't so great. So he eventually helped me get a job outside of the law firm. Um, and so I got a job as chief counsel to Senator Birch Bayh, who was running for president in 1976. I was his chief counsel. And um, he dropped out about a month after I joined. So I didn't think I was <laughs> a good side. So Somebody said, you know, you, you know, what are you going to do now? I said, I don't know. My political acumen isn't so good. And somebody said, there's a guy running for president. He has a pretty good chance of getting the nomination. His name is Jimmy Carter. I said, that's the peanut farmer, right? He said, yes. I said, you know, I don't know about this. But anyway, I got an interview. I had nothing better to do. I got the job. I went down there, and I worked in the general election part of the campaign. Though I never actually met Carter until about three weeks into the White House because he was traveling all the time, and I was a junior person. And so, you know, I was just doing research, and I never saw him. And then we had the transition, and I never saw him there either. My boss became the domestic advisor, and then about three weeks into the administration, I'm in the job in the West Wing of the White House, finally, I, I finally met Carter. So I don't want you to think that I just read the first page of your book or the last, okay. uh, the appendix, but it's going to seem that way to you all for a second. Tell us about the dedication and why. Well, um, I dedicated, uh, you know, uh, my last book uh, to my late parents and to my new uh, grandchildren, um, and, you know, like everybody, or you're, everybody, does anybody here have grandchildren? So, uh, you know, when you have grandchildren, you, you know, kind of realize uh, you get revival of life and so forth, and you want to see them grow up. And, and I, mine are only one and three years old, and I've taught my one-year-old grandson uh, incredible math tricks. And he, I say, you know, what's, wh- how old are you? One. Uh, what's the square root of one? One. Um, how much is 100 minus 99? One. He's got everything down as long as the answer is one. Um, so I dedicated that previous book to, to my late parents and to my new um, grandchildren. This one I dedicated to the public servants who made our democracy uh, survive. And I would have put it to the judges who made our democracy survive. But there were a number of election officials who also, beyond the judges, um, I think did. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher, at leeb at dbu.edu. What I think was courageous. Uh, there were, uh, I think, 65 lawsuits filed after the election, and all, the, all of them were thrown out, more or less. And, you know, it takes some courage to do that. And, and um, I thought our democracy is um, very fragile in many ways. And uh, for all of his strengths and weaknesses, and I've known President Trump for a long time, I think he made some mistakes in saying the election was fraudulently stolen from him, and I wish he hadn't done that. 
And I think that the backbone of our democracy is the belief in rule of law, and the judges really, I think, pursued the rule of law um, and, and throughout those cases. So that's why I dedicated the book to them, because it took a lot of courage to do that. When did you turn the book into the publishers? Oh, probably about, you turn it in typically uh, about six months before it's published, something like that. So, you know, the publishing process is, uh, when we're, what I do is I interview people, then I get the transcripts and I edit the, uh, the transcripts, then I write a summary, and then the hardest part is writing the introduction, which right. is the part that really brings it all together. And then I have an editor at, um, at the publishing firm, and he goes through it, and, and it's a funny thing. I'm now 72 years old. They assigned me an editor. He's 31 years old. I think the guy's 31 years old. How's he going to edit my stuff? He doesn't know. But he's actually pretty good. And, uh, you know, I... Well, the, well, the reason I asked that is because I thought Michael Beschloss' column or uh, right. interview was really interesting. Right. And he said, we almost did not get untied from the railroad tracks, talking about yes. January 6th. Well, and I wonder what he would write today and what you would say today. Well, on that whole subject, um, I've just finished reading a book by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa about called Peril. And it is the most, um, it's a book that can make you cry about when you see how close we came to maybe overturning the election, improperly mm-hmm. in, in, in my view, and how, how and, and so, so good a book and so happy about a country when you see people like General Milley, who spent an enormous amount of time trying to avoid the excesses, trying not to be political, and actually making certain that our country was, was safe and that actually we had rule of law uh, to the transfer of power. So um, I, I say to the events of January 6th are among the, 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 the saddest things I've ever seen. I think like most of you, you're probably watching it and saying, wait a second, this is another country. This must be a banana republic is happening. How can this happen in the United States? You know, I, I, was, I was in Washington, I was watching it, and I was calling all my friends, say, how can this happen? And I, I, I was talking to some members of Congress who were there, and I, I said, what's going on? And it, it, I couldn't believe it. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it was pretty, and the truth is, had they been armed in, with, with guns, they could have killed people. I don't know that they really had guns, the, these people coming in, but had they done so, they could have clearly killed people. And they came very close to getting close to the vice president and, and, and other people. Um, it was... Uh, a dangerous situation, in my view, and I think people around the rest of the world lost a lot of respect for this country when they saw that. They honestly did. So when you, in, in your book, it is an optimistic book, and yet, you know, there's so many things that have happened in the last few months that can shake that confidence, but you built your box, your book around what you call genes, the 13 right. genes. Would you elaborate on yeah, that? Let me describe uh, this. What I was trying to say is, what makes America unique? Every country is unique. There are 200 countries in the world. They each have their own set of cultures and mores and so forth. What's made our country unique? Well, there are many different things, and I kind of said it's like your body. Your body has certain genes. You got them from your parents, and they got them from their parents and so forth. Well, we, got, we have certain genes in our, in effect, uh, uh, nature of our, of, our, of our culture and our nature of our government and nature of our uh, being. And I described 13 of them. There could be more, obviously, there are more, more than 13. But the ones are things like a deep belief in this country in the rule of law, in the belief in democracy, the importance of the right to vote, and the importance of diversity, and the importance of, uh, of uh, I would say, uh, immigration, things like that, and, 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 and separation of powers. And these are genes that I think got us through this most recent time. If we didn't believe in the rule of law, I think we could have 
had a, in effect, a takeover. And the takeover wasn't that difficult to do because if you're all familiar with the Constitution, uh, you know, what's pointed out in the Bob Woodward's book is this. Uh, Vice President Pence did seriously try to figure out how he could please the president. And he called Dan Quayle and said, well, you were vice president. You had the same situation. Uh, what did you do? And is there any flexibility for the vice president? He said, no, you have no flexibility. And all the constitutional scholars said, you have no flexibility. But President Trump had the view that he could. And all, what he could do is just say, I'm not certifying it. Um, if it wasn't certified under a constitution, the Senate doesn't actually agree on who won the Electoral College, it goes to the House of Representatives. And that's happened uh, several times um, in our country's history. And when it goes to the House of Representatives, even though the Democrats control the House, a majority of the delegations are controlled by the Republicans. So you could have California delegation might have 55 Democrats and maybe one Republican, um, but that counts as one vote. If you are Wyoming and you have one congressman, that counts as one vote. Well, there are more Republican states in the House than there are Democratic. So had it gone to the House, it could have gone the other way. And it wasn't like, to be honest, it really wasn't a landslide election in, in Biden's favor. So, you know, President Trump would have won the election had he gotten 44,000 more votes in four different states. Um, and if Hillary Clinton would have won her election, if she gotten 55,000 votes in, in about three different states. So uh, it wasn't as, as much of a... Uh, uh, landslide, as uh, Biden would say. And, and the reason I think Trump began to say this and, is this, and I've known him a long time, and uh, he thought he was going to win. And because the rallies at the end were so big and Biden's were so small, he said, well, these rallies are indicative of my political power. And he just couldn't believe he was going to lose because he didn't take Biden seriously. He thought Biden was you know, too old and feeble and not a person that could beat Trump. And then when he, the rallies were doing so well, he said, OK, forget the pandemic. Forget the other things. I think um, he thought he could win. And then that night, the, the votes came in, and he was ahead for a while. And then what happened was the write-in votes came, were counted usually later, and they tended to be more Democratic because he told people not to do the write-in votes. So he was surprised. But in the end, I believe that if he were to take a lie detector test today, he would pass saying that the election was stolen. Because I think he's, he's able to convince himself of certain things. I mean, he can convince himself that, that what he's saying is true. And eventually, he, if you say it long enough, you begin to believe it. And other people believe it, too. Under, under, if you read Mein Kampf, written by Hitler, in here he describes the big lie theory of life. And the big lie theory of life is if you say something outrageous and over and over again you say it, people will say, wait a second, that's outrageous. How could he say that? Well, if he's saying it and it's so outrageous, it must be true. He wouldn't say it over and over again. Well, Trump has been saying it over and over again, and obviously a lot of people believe it. I think the polls show probably 70-some percent of Republican yeah. voters think that the election was stolen. He has an echo chamber that reaffirms so that. He's, it, look, he's been very effective. I would say, um, you know, I probably have told some of you my story about my relationship with him, and I don't know if I want to, you know, I won't repeat it again, but I've I known him for a long time. And, um, and I spent a lot of time with him when he was president. I, would go, I was the chairman of the Kennedy Center, and the first time we had the Kennedy Center honors, I, uh, Norman Lear said, I'm not going to the White House. Yeah, I think he was absent. And so then Lionel Richie said, well, if Norman Lear's not going, I'm not going. So none of the honorees wanted to go to the White House. So I had to call him up and say, look, the honorees are not coming. He said, well, if they're not coming, I'm not coming to the Kennedy Center honors. So and then we began a four-year effort, and he kept saying to me, David, get some people to honor who would like me. And I said, well, this, you know, it wasn't that easy. And... Um, you know, you know, he said, well, what about Lee Greenwood? I said, well, you only have one song. You have to have more than one song. Um, so, you know, I, uh, you know, it, it wasn't uh, an ideal situation. But I did go see him uh, 
towards the end, uh, actually, it was an interesting situation. I went to see him in March, of, right, right around the time COVID was coming. And uh, I went to talk to him at the Kennedy Center Honors, and we agreed that uh, we weren't going to get the honorees to show up, but that he would, I, would let the, he would, I would have him have a reception at the White House for the Republican donors who wanted to be, go to the White House. And then, um, and then we talked about some other things. And, uh, and I said, by the way, there's a guy at the NIH who really knows a lot about uh, infectious diseases. And I think this COVID thing could come along. You should really use it. I said, what he said, I said, his name is Tony Fauci. And he said, doesn't he like to go on TV too much? He's on TV all the time. So I realized there was probably a problem because Tony Fauci uh, was, you know, getting good press and Trump wasn't. I think Trump would have been reelected had these things happened. If there had been no COVID, he would have been reelected in a landslide. Had Joe Biden not been the nominee, uh, Trump would have won a landslide. He would have crushed all the other Democratic candidates, in my view. And had he not done one other thing that was a big mistake, in my view, he would have won. When Mike Pence went out and did the briefings in front of uh, the White House press corps, the, the ratings were going this way. And Trump was honestly jealous that Mike Pence was getting these high ratings. So after about three, three or four of those briefings, Trump started to do the briefings. And when he did these briefings, we all know that he said some things that maybe, he, in hindsight, he wished he hadn't said. And I think that image of him dissembling in front of people every day was really what hurt him. And to think about it, had he not done that yeah. or had not had COVID, uh, it would have probably been a landslide because he only lost by, you know, these 44,000 votes in a couple of states. Um, I don't think the election so was So where do you stand stolen. on the Electoral College? Where do you stand on the Electoral College? Well, uh, when I worked in, for Birch Bayh, he was the principal leader. I was the chairman. I was the, uh, the chief counsel for the Senate Subcommittee on Constitutional Amendments. And one of the ones that Bayh wanted to have was to get rid of the uh, Electoral College. Uh, and, but it never got anywhere, though. When Carter was president... Um, Carter did agree that he would support Bayh's view that we should get rid of it, but it's not going to get anywhere for this reason. The, the reason we have the Electoral College is that if we had popular voting at the time of the, the Constitution was set up, um, slaves theoretically could vote, or, or they would have been counted, let's say. And, and so it was a complicated situation. There weren't that many uh, whites in the South, but there were many slaves in the South, and the, the slave-owning states wanted to have the blacks counted, and so it was a complicated situation. Otherwise, if they weren't counted, this, the, the southern states would have been outvoted in many things in Congress because they didn't have enough uh, population relative to the, uh, to the northern states. So that's why the slaves had the three-fifths vote. Um, and, and the way they masked all that was the Electoral College. That was the masking of the not running for popular vote. But you need two-thirds of each house and three-quarters of each state, or three-quarters of the states to have a constitutional amendment. Aside, there's another way of doing it, which has a separate constitutional convention, but that's never happened. So you need two, uh, two-thirds of each house and three-quarters of the states, and you won't get three-quarters of the states. So it's an interesting thing to talk about, but it isn't going to happen, and so I try not to tilt at windmills that aren't going to happen. There's no way that that's going to happen in my lifetime because too many states that are smaller like being, uh, sure. you know, being the electoral college. So one of the things that you talk about in the book, and this is where I said that I read the back of the book, right. too. This is amazing about the citizenship test. You yes. all need to take it. You will pass because you're World Affairs Council members. But let me describe what the problem please is. Please do. Um, when this country was first set up, anybody could show up. You know, there were no visas, no passports, and so forth. Anybody could show up, and the people who used to show up were from Western Europe. And they showed up. There was no constraints. Um, eventually, uh, in the, the mid-1800s or so, people began to realize people coming from Europe, they weren't all from Western Europe. They were from Southern Europe, 
They were Italian. They were Greek. They were Jewish. And then sometimes Asians would show up. And so Congress wasn't happy about that. And so in the late 1800s, early part of the, 19th, of the 20th century, there was efforts to change it so we would constrain uh, people to coming in here. Finally, in 1925, legislation was passed. And it basically put a bar on certain types of people coming in. And it was hard to get in if you weren't from Western Europe. Uh, ultimately, that was changed because President Johnson uh, pursued what John Kennedy wanted to do was the legislation that fixed it in 1965. Um, now, under the existing legislation, to come in, among other things, you have to reside here for five years and you have to take a citizenship test. The citizenship test consists of 100 potential questions about things like uh, how many branches are there in the federal government, um, who was first president of the United States. These aren't the hardest questions in the world, and you're allowed to study for them. So of uh, the people that take the test, and roughly 800,000 people become legal citizens each year, 91% of the people uh, pass the test. Is anybody here a naturalized citizen? Anybody? Okay. You've taken this test, presumably. And the way it works is you have 100 potential questions. Um, you're, you're given 10. That is an administrator who will ask you orally 10 questions. You have to get six right. If you're 65 or older, they tell you exactly which 10 questions they're going to give you. So it's a little bit easier. Um, an organization, a nonprofit organization, decided to see whether native-born Americans could do the same thing. So and it's a slightly different format, but basically they went to people in all, millions of people in all 50 states, and not surprisingly, in 49 out of 50 states, a majority of citizens couldn't pass the basic citizenship test. Only in one state, Vermont, with a bare majority, 53%, could the majority of citizens pass. So why is that? Well, we don't teach civics that much anymore. We don't teach history that much anymore. And so we don't have people that really know much about the way the government works. And I think that's uh, something that maybe President Trump took advantage of, too. Another author in the book is Professor Gates, and there was a statistic there that really surprised me. Voting, and I would like you to talk about voting restrictions. In 1898, there were 130,000 blacks who were registered to vote. In 1904, there was just over 1,000, 1,300. How well, concerned are you, and we're in the great state of Texas, about voting restrictions? Well, the theory of democracy, Athenian democracy, was that everybody voted. But as countries and organizations became bigger, you couldn't have everybody vote on everything. So you have what's called representative democracy. And my book is about what we have is a representative democracy. Famously, when Benjamin Franklin was leaving the Constitutional Convention, he was asked by a woman, what have you given us? And he said, a republic, if you can keep it. A republic meaning a representative democracy. So we have a representative democracy, and it has all of the flaws that we, we know about. But the theory of it is that if you vote, you can make a difference. And it's a surprising situation in our country. We, we, men and women go overseas, and, and millions of men and women have fought overseas and died fighting for our right to vote. And yet a large percentage of people don't vote. In the last presidential election, 62% of the people voted, which was very, very high by normal standards. Normally, in a presidential election, you might get 52 53 54%. That's 62%. But if you have a state election only or a midterm election, you might get 30% of eligible voters. So amazingly, people don't vote that much. But the right to vote is something that people take a lot of pride in and should. In our country, it's hard to believe, but when the country was first set up, of course, uh, slaves were not allowed to vote, but women were not allowed to vote. Uh, and, and many women were against the right to vote. Uh, Eleanor Roosevelt opposed the right to vote for a while because 
women, many women thought, well, that's really men's business. It's a dirty business, and we don't want to dirty ourselves by getting involved in voting or in politics. And it took a long time before it wasn't until 1920 that women had the right to vote. Now that everybody has theoretically the right to vote, we're kind of constraining it uh, a bit. And what I think is going on uh, is this. When John Kennedy was elected president of the United States in 1960, uh, 90% of this population in this country was white, and 10% was non-white. That's it, mostly black, not that much Latino then, and very little Asian, 10%, 90% white. Today, we have roughly 60% white and 40% non-white. So obviously, um, if you are white and you, um, you don't have the same influence in elections that you used to have, because presumably that people vote in according to some ethnic views, and, and, and they vote the same way. If you're black, you might not all vote the same way, or at least you're not the same way. But to some extent, there's a lot of voting in the same ethnic group. And so a lot of people would say, um, I want to have things my way, and now people are voting against the way I want, and so I might constrain them. And so um, to my surprise, the corporate community has tried to fight this, but I would say, well, I wouldn't say they've given up, but it, it's not succeeding. The effort... In Georgia succeeded, the effort in Florida succeeded, the effort in Texas has, has succeeded. So as I understand it now, for example, in Harris County in Houston, there's only one place you can drop off um, ballots, uh, for write-in ballots. You know, a city, Harris County is kind of big. 500 so, square miles. You know, I mean, I, I uh, you know, people would say it's hypocritical to say that um, you're really supporting voting rights by doing these things. And I would say it's not hypocritical because the right principle is, I want to do what's helped my party. And if you accept that principle, it's not hypocritical, because it's obviously going to help, uh, I would think, the Republican Party to have fewer minority voters. So that's what's going on. I don't think it's going to change. And I, I don't think the Supreme Court is going to overturn a lot of this either. So I, I think we are, hmm. I'm really saddened by the fact that right now the country seems to be at loggerheads. We've had the Civil War, and nothing is as bad as that. But right now, Washington is completely dysfunctional. Democrats and Republicans do not really socialize. They don't work together. They barely acknowledge each other's presence. And if you vote for something that's the other party's bill, you get ostracized in certain ways. So it's not going to get any better anytime soon. Some, as some of you know from my first book, I've started a, pro a program where I interview historians in front of members of Congress. And um, Democrats and Republicans, I ask them to sit you know, together, and they tell me it's the only time they can really do that. There's no press there. Nobody can yeah. see them doing it. And they can actually talk with people from the opposite party, which they normally can't do anymore. And it's a sad situation. In, in, in the history of our country, usually anything significant was bipartisan in terms of legislation. Now everything's either all Republican, all Democratic. And we now have the 50-50 in the Senate. You, 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 know, you just can't get anything done. And the result is we are laughingstock in the rest of the world because we can't even pass our debt limit. We can't even pass continuing resolutions. And we basically, everything we now do is, is either a continuing resolution, a gigantic appropriations bill, which nobody can really understand because you have, you know, 5,000 pages in it, or, or the debt limit. And the Congress is roughly, is essentially dysfunctional. Would so, you eliminate the debt ceiling? I'm sorry? Would you eliminate the debt ceiling? I would. We've raised it 70 times. There are only two countries in the world that have a debt limit. One is Denmark and the other is Poland for whatever reason. Nobody else has it. And it, it's meaningless because we, we have to, we, we have to, to, to raise the debt limit every time. So it's really a, uh, it's antiquated law. I would, I would get rid of it. And I think it's somewhat hypocritical for the Republicans to say that they don't want to support it because it's really to pay debt that rose in, let's say, in the Trump years. The no, more debt rose, uh, was added to our, our debt in the Trump years than any other time. And, you know, so I'm not saying it's all their fault, but 
but it's, it, it seems ridiculous to do this, but it's a game of politics, and if you don't like politics, you shouldn't be in Washington. That's what, what's going on. We have just a few minutes left, and Liz mentioned about your generosity, and I'd like you to talk about the recent gift you made to the uh, Lincoln Center in New York for Performing Arts and why you made that $10 million gift. Okay, well, I've, I'm trying to do... A, my, I don't, I'm not as rich as Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or any of those people, and so I'm not going to tackle the kind of issues that they, do, they might... I, I don't have enough money to solve global climate change. I, I'm not going to solve the racial disparity in our country or poverty, or I just don't have enough money to solve K-12. to So what I try to do is I have four standards. One, start something that, I, that wouldn't otherwise get started, finish something that wouldn't otherwise get finished, something that I'm intellectually interested in and I can understand and will stay engaged with other than just writing a check, and fourth, I will see some progress in my lifetime. And so I... Most of my money goes to education and medical research, and, and some of it's really good, some of it I'm not sure about. But I, I coined the phrase patriotic philanthropy, which means that philanthropy is designed to remind people of the history and heritage of the country, so buy historic documents, fix monuments, and so forth. And I'm very interested now, and increasingly I'm going to make some gifts relating to um, increasing our, our civic education, increasing our democracy participation, and things like that. What you're referring to as a gift that um, there's, a, there's an atrium named after me at the Lincoln Center, and I was the vice chairman of the board there before I became the chairman of the Kennedy Center. And it's designed uh, to bring people together in, as a gathering place in, in New York, but it's really now used for a lot of democratic things. This is where voting is done. There's educational seminars on democracy. And we're going to um, now have more and more things done to educate people about civics and history and other things. And, and as a result of that gift, that's why I did it. So... You know, we, we, we talk a lot about, um, I, I guess, how do you decide which document to buy? And can you tell us a story, whether it's a Magna Carta or the Declaration of Independence, sort of the behind-the-scenes story yeah. about how you negotiated and made a purchase? Well, um, I didn't wake up one day and say, I'm going to buy the Magna Carta. It seems presumptuous to do that. Um, and I didn't even know much about the Magna Carta. I frankly could care less about it, frankly. The, the Magna Carta that Ross Perot from Dallas owned was in the National Archives about three blocks from my office. I never actually visited it. So it wasn't as if I had this uh, obsession with the Magna Carta. And so what actually happened is uh, an investment banker invited me to go to a reception in New York, and it turned out the reception was actually at Sotheby's, and it was really disguised to get people interested in the Magna Carta, which was going to be auctioned the next day. Ross Perot had bought it, as many of you may know, Ross Perot, uh, there, there are 17 copies of the Magna Carta. Uh, the original 1215 version, there are four of those, and there's some other ones that came along. There are 17 different ones, all in parchment and all in, written in, in medieval Latin. Um, 15 are in British institutions, one is in the Australian Parliament, and one was in a family's possession for 500 years. They went land poor in the early 80s. They decided to put it to the, the Sotheby's to sell it. Ross Perot heard about it. He sent Tom Luce, a lawyer his, of, yep. from Dallas, over there. <laughs> Uh, Luce went over there and negotiated to buy it for, I think, about a million two or a million five, not sure. And then he rolled it up and he took it through uh, British Customs. And they said, what's in that tube? And he said, the Magna Carta. And he said, sure. <laughs> they thought it was a joke. So he took it through and then he brought it back and then he put it on display at the National Archives. And then for a number of reasons, Ross Perot decided to sell it and use the money for uh, Iraqi war veterans' uh, compensation, or not compensation, but medical treatment. And so uh, the, the curator, very clever, no doubt, said, well, I'm afraid this is going to be sold to somebody from Russia or Saudi Arabia or, I don't know, whether Mongolia or something. She had a couple countries that didn't sound like the, the places that Magna Carta should reside. So I 
said, okay, I, I got it. And uh, so I just said, okay, I'm going to go buy it. And I didn't want to tell anybody because it sounds presumptuous to say to your wife, I'm going to buy the Magna Carta tomorrow. And I didn't want to tell my children because they would say, how much less money might this mean for us? So I just went the next night and I went there and I never had been to Sotheby's before to, to buy anything. And they put me in a little room and they started bidding. And if you've ever been in an auction, all of a sudden, you know, you get in the swing of things and finally the auctioneer is saying, you want to bid, you want to bid, you want to bid. And I, I get tired of him saying, you want to bid. So I finally said, okay, I'll bid. So I started bidding. Next thing I know, sold. Okay. So uh, well, I, I, I bought it. For those of us who know Margot Perot, I bet she wasn't very happy about hearing that he sold it. But it's good to know there was a Dallas connection to the story. Well, so, um, well, anyway, so I bought it, and then I put it on display at the National Archives, and it'll be there forever. And then I started buying other historic documents, mostly for this reason. This is the reason. Um, we all know what's in the Magna Carta. We know the language. Uh, so what's so important about having the original? Well, the human brain hasn't yet evolved such that if you see something on a computer slide, it's the same as seeing it in person. So if you see the original Magna Carta, before you go there, you're probably going to read about it. When you're there, you're going to hear more about it. And afterwards, you're probably going to read about it. And so it's a way of educating people. And so I buy these documents and, and put them in places where people will, um, will see them. I bought, relating to University of Virginia, I think more, I own more copies of the Declaration of Independence than anybody in the country. I buy them every time they come up, and I put them on display in various places. And, uh, How many and copies are there? Well, there are different, different versions of it. It's complicated. But the stone copies, uh, which is the perfect replica that was made in, uh, in uh, 1823, um, I own about 10 of them, and they're probably in private hands. There aren't that many left. So I've interviewed seven of the people out of the 27 here, and I thought that was pretty decent. But who have – and I, I saw an interview you gave a few weeks ago, so I don't know if this is still the case. You did not interview – you have not been able to interview Elon Musk – or um, Zuckerberg. And why is that, do you think? Well, Have you tried? Um, I haven't really tried with Elon Musk. I, he's a little elusive. Um, but, um, but people have told me uh, that they would try to arrange it. I, I would like to, I've met him, but I don't really know him. And, uh, you know, there's always somebody I want to interview. And I, you know, I, my biggest regret is that I, not only I, but nobody got to interview uh, many great Americans or other people um, who are no longer with us because... The interview format is a relatively new thing. I think it kind of developed in the, in the early 1950s on The Tonight Show when Steve Allen or Jack Parr were interviewing people and made it information and entertainment. And then daytime talk shows came along and interviews came along. And now everybody's got an interview show. Everybody's got a podcast. You know, the bumper sticker is, honk if you don't have your own podcast. Everybody has one now, right? So, but we, there was never an interview of Abraham Lincoln, never an interview of George Washington, never an interview of, of Napoleon. And so I, I've thought about writing a book where I would interview Napoleon and kind of put the answers in his mouth that he should have given if he would give an interview. And, uh, you know, I would like to ask, uh, you know, uh, Cleopatra, who was a better lover, Mark Antony or, or uh, Julius Caesar? Or uh, uh, ask Henry VIII, why did he chop off the heads of his wives? Why not just get a prenup and make it easier? <laughs> or William Shakespeare, what, you know, who really wrote these things and uh, why do people think you didn't write them? So I, I wish be, we, we had these interviews, but we don't have them. Of the people alive today, I would like to interview the Pope, but doesn't seem to want to do a lot of interviews. The Queen Elizabeth doesn't want to do a lot of interviews, but uh, I'll eventually get Elon Musk. So let's hear from all of you. What questions do you have? Yeah. Go ahead right here in the front. <laughs> Hi, I'm Julie Borlaug, and thank you, and, sure. and, and I'd love to hear you all night long, and I think all of us would. Two questions. You love civics. So could you put some funding into social media public awareness campaigns for term limits for congressional members? Um, I think we need that. Okay. 
And if you could get, you know, the whole group to kind of give in to that. And then second, and, and this is more personal to me, um, every, this group over here knows my grandfather, Norm Borlaug, won a Nobel Peace Prize for his work with the Green Revolution in, yes. Af- in Asia. Um, good friend of Jimmy, Jimmy Carter. Carter's. Right. Um, so, you know, you, you see the race to space and all that's going on. I don't understand why we've never had people come together and say, let's end hunger and poverty. It is man-made. So can you give me some comments on how we can direct people to do that? And it's not just donor fatigue, because I don't think people understand the colonial effect on Africa, and we've only independent 2060, you know, blah, blah, blah. But how can we get more people interested? Because if we want stability and peace in this world, we feed people. Well, the first question is a little bit easier than the second question, but uh, in, the con- in the Constitutional Convention, there, w- there were term limits on House positions and the Senate position uh, and senators, and then it, in the last draft, it was kind of taken out. I'm not quite clear why there's no explanation for it. Um, I think term limits wouldn't be a bad thing, um, but I think trying to get it passed will take a long, long time, and um, you know, I... I I just don't know whether that's the political capital one should use. Again, getting a constitutional amendment is difficult. Um, so I, I think it's going to be difficult to do uh, in the end. And sometimes when you've had term limits in certain areas, it hasn't really worked out so wonderfully. But in terms of the other issue, it's people like to do something where they can see a result. And, you know, you, you send a rocket ship up, you can see the result. You know, it goes up, mm. comes down, everybody's chat, happy and so forth. You know, poverty is... is is so difficult to solve, and the truth is most Americans are most interested in solving problems in this country, not in other part, parts of the world. Um, and so I think it's, it's just such a difficult thing, and there's obviously some other uh, racial issues and other concerns. I, I just, I, I don't have a good answer for it. Uh, he was, he won the Nobel Prize in 1970 or 70. Um, yes, I remember uh, for, the, uh, for the Green Revolution, and it was great, and he, he was very uh, close to, to Jimmy Carter. And, uh, yeah, that was uh, when they gave the Nobel Peace Prize out to somebody that deserved it as opposed to somebody who, um, you know, sometimes they... It's a very political thing, as you know, and the Nobel Prizes... Um, I, some of you probably have heard my story about this, but the, the way the Nobel Prizes came along was... was um, um, Alfred Nobel was sitting in his kitchen in Stockholm, and he read, Alfred Nobel dies. And he was reading it, and he was alive. So um, he realized that he was alive, and it was his brother that had died. But it said, merchant of death is, is gone. Thank God he's gone. He realized he didn't like his obituary, so he came up with the Nobel Prizes. But in doing this, he uh, said that Sweden was too warlike, and so he said that he would have the Norwegian uh, group pick the Peace Prize. And they do. It's a, more of a political group because they're all former uh, state legislators or legislators in Norway, so it's a little more political. And sometimes they give it to people in the hope that they won't do anything bad, like, like Barack Obama got it, and he, hadn't, he had only been president for like six months, and he was shocked. He couldn't believe he got it. So sometimes they're trying to affect policy, but I think Norman Warlong was, was a person who really did deserve it and, um, you know, uh, was a great American for sure. Talmadge, let's hear from you. Going forward, let's say you're chairman of the committee to decide what part of our history should be recognized with a monument or a statue. What's your standard? Uh, given oh, that okay. people made decisions in their own time based on their own standards, and in many cases, many of those statues okay. are now being taken down. Well, let me, okay, look, 
the, there was a proposal by some to um, tear down the Washington Monument because Washington was a slave owner. Uh, but he wasn't honored because he was a slave owner. He was honored because he was first president and so forth. Uh, the Jefferson, Jefferson Memorial, people have said we should get rid of that because Jefferson was a slave owner and so forth. I think the standard should be that if the principal reason that somebody is being honored is because he or she was a slave owner or, um, or something that is to, so nefarious against our, our basic uh, culture, then that's one thing. Um, it's another thing if you are really honoring somebody who happened to do bad things as well, but that wasn't the principal reason you're, you're honoring them. You can, there's nobody has a monument in Washington that's perfect. You can go after anybody and find something wrong. And, I mean, not just slavery, but other things people did wrong. Um, Anti-Semitism, um, uh, all kinds of immoral kinds of things, all kinds of things that might be inappropriate. I, I think you can't cancel everything. Um, the reason that some of the Confederate monuments probably are, are maybe inappropriate is because it, it wasn't as if Robert E. Lee was being honored in some cases because he was a great general. What was really happening is many of these monuments were put up in the early part of the 20th century when the Ku Klux Klan was reviving the idea that the lost cause was, was something you should honor, the lost cause being that the, the, the Southern effort to, to secede from the Union was not because of slavery, but it was because of Southern principles and, and states' rights and so forth, which was really rewriting history. But some of those monuments probably... Um, should come down, but some of them shouldn't. Um, for example, I put up the money to redo the Custis Lee Mansion at the top of Arlington Cemetery, and it's been redone as, as it existed then, and, and that's where Robert E. Lee lived, and I think people should see how he lived and so forth. They might change the name of it as opposed to being the official monument of Robert E. Lee, but I, I think it should stay, and people should see history. Uh, we shouldn't just tear down. I mean, the pyramids were built with slaves. Should we tear down the pyramids because they had slavery? Probably not. So one of the chapters here is by Bu Shurinvasan uh, on 400 years of American capitalism. And he writes about how the communists seem to be very good at capitalism. And yet all the news we're seeing right now is how Xi Jinping is really trying to put some right. strong claws in taking it back. And I know you've invested personally as well as the Carlyle Group in China. How bullish are you now? Well... Um for most of organized history, China was the wealthiest country in the world. And then the 1600s and 1700s, Europe came up, and Europe replaced China as a dominant economy in the world for the last 300-plus years. So when China went communist in 1949, it went really off the radar screen of wealth. When we decided to kind of bring China back into the, 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 uh, the, the world, um, ultimately, we thought it was a good thing for China and good thing for us, but we have to recognize now that what we did is we unleashed 1.4 billion people who are using capitalism in a different format than we are, but they're becoming extremely wealthy, and they will be wealthier than we are uh, by GDP measurements in 10 years, by purchase price parity, they're already wealthier. And so we have a gigantic competitor, and in the lifetime of everybody in this room, the major competitor of the United States will be obviously China in military matters, economic matters, technological matters, and so forth. That's our greatest competitor. When President Trump became president, the Chinese were shocked that, that what he did because they said, wait a second, all American politicians run against China for the last 20 years, but they don't do anything about it. Trump actually imposed tariffs. They were shocked, and they didn't really know what to do about it. And finally, they sent over envoys and started saying, what do you want us to do? And, and Trump really didn't know what he wanted. Finally, he got one person to negotiate a, a so-called trade deal, but 
the Chinese Politburo for a while was saying, hey, maybe Trump isn't so bad because he is such dis causing such disarray that we can go to Africa, we can go to Latin America, we can go to the Middle East and say, you want to rely on the United States and Trump? We want to rely on us. And so they made great inroads. But then Trump became so rambunctious and so critical of them, they got tired of it. So finally, the Politburo, by a bare majority, I think, really wanted to have Biden win. They thought Biden would be like Obama, relatively easy to deal with. And then Biden shocked them because Biden's view was, and his advisor's view was, that we are weak in negotiating with China. We have to be stronger before we negotiate. And the result is we now have enormous amounts of tension uh, with China and, and over Taiwan, the, the South China Sea, uh, the, the, the islands there, and also the, the uh, uh, cyber terrorism kinds of things, cyber attacks. Um, I think it's not going to be good for quite a while. The president realizes he made too big a, I think, too bold a statement against China. So he reached out to have a meeting with Xi Jinping. And Xi Jinping doesn't want to leave China right now, so they're going to do it virtually. But I think it's going to be a tough relationship for, for quite a while. As a place to invest, it's still not a bad place to invest. If you recognize you can't, you know, criticize the Chinese government, and you're going to try to tr criticize the Chinese government, you're probably going to wind up in jail. Or if you're like Jack Ma, you'll probably be not heard from again because he criticized China. So have government. you rebalanced in any way your portfolio in China? Well, it's hard to rebalance it completely because there's long-term investments um, in many ways. But um, I, I still think China is a, a great place to invest because you've got 1.4 billion customers. Now, the issue that you might raise is, well, but why would you invest in a country that has, um, that's do, treating the Uyghurs so badly, that's doing things in Hong Kong and human rights? Well, if you get down to human rights considerations, you wouldn't invest in most foreign countries, probably other than a few Western democracies. And we have our challenges here, too. So that isn't my principal issue. It's, I, I worry about the investors that I'm protecting and whether I, I'm doing a good job for them if I pull their money out of China when they might get good returns. And we've gotten great returns before. But it, it's not an easy issue for sure. So this was the trilogy, the third book. Is there a fourth one? I have a book coming out next year about how to invest, and I've interviewed the greatest investors in, in our country, and, and um, you know, I don't know that anybody's going to become, um, you, know, um, you know, Warren Buffett by reading the book, but um, it's, it's insights in how the greatest minds in the investment world have, uh, have made, become the greatest in minds, and, you know, there's some ideas about investing in there, so that's what I'm going to do next. Well, David, I think Gail Kotman would be very proud tonight. Right. Thank you so much, Thank sir. Thank you very much. My Thank pleasure. You. Thank you. I think that was the fastest program that I have been a part of because it was that interesting and engaging. So thank you so much. And I never dreamed when I worked with you in D.C. with my former organization, our umbrella organization, that I would have the opportunity to invite you here to Dallas and for such a wonderful lecture. So thank you so much again, Ed and Catherine Kotman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Stand up. Stand up.